Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Down in Dallastown is a startling film about the shifting terrain of public memory 60 years after the murder of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, through interviews with people on the street and songs recorded to memorialize JFK in the mid-60s, the film explores the impact of the assassination on issues in today's world, from lingering conspiracy theories to the proliferation of gun violence, homelessness, and the scourge of K2. Terrific documentary film, very well, very intimate in so many ways. We spend time with people in this film, get a chance to understand who they are and where they are in their lives. And we're joined by an award-winning writer, poet, playwright, photographer, and filmmaker. He's the director of, of Documentary Arts, a nonprofit organization, and that would be Alan Governor. Alan, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned to you just before we got started, the assassination of John Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. This was a huge event in American history. How did you come upon this as an idea to do as a documentary? For me, uh, it also was deeply personal. While it's not part of the film, the day that Kennedy was assassinated was indelible in my mind. I was a patrol boy in sixth grade, standing next to a policeman in Marblehead, Massachusetts. We both heard the news at the same time that Kennedy had been shot and killed in Dallas. I didn't really think a whole lot about it through the years. I mean, I had my own views on the Kennedys, and my parents had their views mixed on the Kennedys, and I wasn't old enough to really understand. There was a feeling of hope, I think, in terms of his youth and aspirations. It stayed with me, but wasn't at the forefront. In the mid-1970s, I came to Dallas at the invitation of someone who became a professor of mine, uh, an art historian, philosopher, and I took the bus. I was then in graduate school in Austin and took the bus to Dallas, and he and walked around the West End at that time, in the mid-1970s, it must have been 1974 or 5, it, it, everything in the West End was kind of run down. The book depository had a boarded-up window. It preceded the Kennedy, the JFK Museum. It was very eerie. And in 1980, I moved to Dallas. And the Kennedy assassination site was one I, that you know I visited. but. It wasn't like every time someone came from out of town, unless they asked for it, would I bring them there? Fast forward uh, to some years ago, I was had a commission from the International Center of Photography to do a short film on Marianne Mormon, who made the Polaroid. It was for the 50th anniversary of the assassination, and Brian Wallace, who was the chief curator at the ICP at the time, asked me to work on this since I was in Dallas. Marianne Mormon was known as the silent witness. She had not been interviewed in 50 years since the assassination. 
though her photograph, the Polaroid, the single Polaroid that she took, is perhaps the most widely distributed photograph of that day in the world. It points to the power of the bystander photograph, but it just was a photograph she made at exactly the moment that the first bullet hit Kennedy's head. Yet she wasn't aware of that. For her, it was there was a wind gust and something that just brushed up his hair. And so Mary made this photograph that went viral through the wire service internationally after the assassination. And I talked to her for several months and really, you know, she talked about how she felt it was divine intervention, that she was there. This was her calling, was to make this photograph. She was a deeply religious Christian woman. And we talked and I asked her about her coming back to the site and me filming her there. She had a mixed relationship with the JFK Museum. We talked and you know, it's very casual and I'm not a high pressure kind of person when it comes to this. Finally, I said, well, Mary, let's talk in a couple of weeks and uh, my birthday's next week. And she said, well, when's your birthday? And I said, August 5th. And she said, why, that's my birthday. We were meant to meet. And she agreed to come. She lived in a little town in Texas and she agreed to come to Dallas with her husband and uh, retell the story. And that was shown at the International Center of Photography. It was shown on Frontline, but it never really got wide distribution. And it didn't really have a full context. With the 60th anniversary right upon us, I wanted to make a film that looked at the legacy of Kennedy from a vantage point that was not normally taken. The Marianne Mormon piece was at the center of it. The idea of the snapshot, the memory, the song, the story. What is that terrain of public memory? And so I started to go more deeply into this. Uh, another commission I had gotten for the 50th anniversary was I did a, it was also at the International Center of Photography in the Dallas Museum of Art. It was a sound installation with the assassination songs. And it was a large, dark theater. And you watched and listened as the music played many of the songs that are in the film. That was very effective. And I wanted to bring those together. But it needed something more that, that would connect it to the present. And so I started going back to the Kennedy assassination site in a way that I normally did not. And so I walk a lot. I'd walk over there. My wife and I have an apartment in downtown Dallas. And I'd walk over there and just kind of talk to people. And what was of particular interest to me was the number of homeless people who were there. And I remember one of the first questions, you know, I gave a guy a dollar, you know, and because I wanted to ask him, the question was, what's it like? I mean, there are a lot of homeless people around here to, to people who come to see the assassination site, you know, help the homeless. And he said, no, no, not really. And he's the, the person that's in the film. He was very soft spoken. And I asked him, you know, then why are you here? And he started talking a little bit about Kennedy. And, you know, he made the comment that Kennedy would have helped the homeless. 
And then when I asked him why, he said, well, he he's a good guy. He didn't even put it in the past tense. So I kept going back. And then finally, I met this on another trip downtown. There's this relief organization that caters and helps the homeless that parks itself just within blocks of the assassination site. And there was a man I met and he he was really emphatic about, you know, the legacy of Kennedy for him, that Kennedy set forth a promise to eradicate poverty. And it was a promise because of the assassination that had never been fulfilled. And he's he's very strong when he says, you know, Kennedy was the kind of guy who would have said, help him out, give the little guy a chance. And it was so, it resonated for me. And then at the same time of all of this, one of the weekends I was there, I was asking these questions about people and where they were and what it meant to them to be there. And it was on a Saturday morning. Well, that Saturday afternoon, there was a mass shooting in a suburb of Dallas. Ten people were killed. I went back the next day and started talking to people about that. And one man who's in the film talked about how, you know, he was on the phone with, you know, his friends who had come with him from Odessa and that they were hiding in a footlocker break room, listening and they're trying to keep their kids quiet because there were gunshots outside. It opened up a line of conversation about the proliferation of gun violence. I had done a lot of filming with about this issue of gun violence. And I did a a short piece that was also part of a feature film of mine called Serving Second Chances about a gun buyback. And it was after one of the terrible shootings. And this guy was selling, really, it was two gun buybacks, one by a church where they were buying guns to destroy them, and one by this group that wanted to buy guns to give them a better home. And it was intense. There was one guy at the pro-gun part of it who, a young guy, you know, and he started talking to me about how much his AR-15 was worth because of this school shooting. And it was, I don't understand this. Why is that? He said, well, you know, it's, you know, gun shows, everyone's buying guns faster than ever. And he was proud of the fact that he was going to take his AR-15 to a gun show and sell it for three to five times more than what he paid for it. So I asked if for him, I needed to say, can you sign a release, please? And, and tell me that in a little bit more detail. And he did so. So the connections are unexpected. And the counterpoint between music throughout, it's not a conventional documentary. Yeah, I, I would agree with all the, all the things that you are talking about are in the film. And I, I want to take a kind of a half a step back in terms of putting John Kennedy in a, a little bit of a historic perspective. For a lot of people listening to our conversation, John Kennedy is well known, significant in many ways. But for a lot of people, he's a, he's a footnote in a history exam in some ways. He's not. He doesn't carry the resonance for for people who were alive when he was when he was uh, president and before that. Actually, he was quite a quite a charismatic figure. But I, but America in 1960, when he was elected, was literally at the pinnacle of dominance of the world. 
we we had power economy economically militarily socially in ways that the roman empire would have dreamed about in in the sense that gdp across the across the world we had we were the dominant society and in comes kennedy who was younger than most leaders had been in the past i think he was the youngest president ever elected and he came came with promise of just as you're describing a promise of a world where like roosevelt did for people who were devastated by the depression an opportunity that they may not have had in the past and along with his presidency failed or successful however you may look at john kennedy we imbued him with a tremendous amount of capital in regard to who, what he was capable of, what the expectations were for him. So to see him assassinated, gunned down, and to your point about guns, the fact that I cannot recall any discussion about gun control in the aftermath of his assassination, it's become more and more something that we talk about all the time because the prevalence of violence in this country. But I, I think for people who are listening to our conversation who really don't understand the pull of the name John Kennedy and his brother Robert in many ways has on people and on this country during the very short period of time he was president is hard to overstate. I agree too, because, and that's really the way in which these different songs that are intercut throughout the entire movie, that's what they make clear the blues, the gospel, the Mexican-American Notania music, the country and Western songs, the birds. It, they, the music personalizes a relationship that the singers felt for Kennedy. And within that was this sense of hope yeah. and promise. And it was cut short. And so often the focus is upon the conspiracy. I wanted to focus on the legacy in a way that hadn't been done before. Ultimately, I feel that the movie is hopeful because as you get deeper into the homelessness and some of the homeless people that are in this movie, the last homeless individual that I talked to was talking about his dream to help other people. The promise of Kennedy was Camelot. It was... It it was a new way, not only for the United States, but in many ways thought of it as a new way for the world to begin to behave and understand that young people are the future and or our future can be brighter, can be more equitable, just as you say, and just as you describe about this film, down in Dallas town, that the expectations and the promise of Kennedy are what you essentially bring forth in the film. And they they, they were powerful promises. I, I, I think so too. And I think that that's, that's the deep subtext of the movie. Yeah. It takes you on a journey. It's not just information. It's a movie that I hope people have a visceral response. I mean, there was one review that from Film Threat where they talked about the movie being riveting and emotionally powerful. He hit it. That's the way I feel about it. I want to remind our listeners, excuse me, that we're speaking with the director, producer, writer of the film, of the documentary film, Down in Dallas Town. That would be Alan Governor. You have, in your filmography, you have focused on 
these subjects in the past, especially music, your connection to music seems to be pretty strong in this film. And I, and I sense in other, in other work that you have been a part of, but the power of music, the power to uplift people is, is in, in thematic keeping with what I think down in Dallas town is about as well. Um, what is it for you as a filmmaker? What are the kinds of subjects? If I'm, if I'm close to the mark on why you are a filmmaker, help me understand what, why you've chose, um, chose to be a filmmaker. For me, there's always been a very close connection between my work as a writer and a filmmaker. And my first book, which was called Stony Knows How, which I it began as a college paper, uh, my first published book, I started it when I was 21. It was published uh, eight years later. In the middle of doing this book, which was about a hunchback dwarf tattoo artist in a wheelchair, I got the idea that this should be a movie. I had no film school background or training, and I started talking to people, and it took a few different film crews to finally get to the person who became my mentor in filmmaking, which was Les Blank, and Les shot this movie, he, and I had seen his movies when I was in graduate school before moving to Dallas, and you know, I, I so admired everything that he did, and Les got very involved. I did get grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and others, but Les really got behind this movie. I learned a lot about making movies from him and my editor at the time, Pacho Lane, who was also a collaborator, but Les really had a big impact on me and Les lent me the money to finish the film. He also moved it into the world, you know, and helped me gain some identity. So for that first half hour film got reviewed by Vincent Camby in the New York Times and got an amazing paragraph that led to wonderful, you know, distribution. However, it took me 10 years to ever buy back half ownership in my own movie. But that said, that first movie is still an active distribution 40 years later. Well, and you mentioned Les Blank, and I wish I had known him. Uh, I actually know somebody who was taught by him as well. A friend of mine was in his class, and he seemed, from what you just described and syncs up with what I've heard about him, is his desire to pass it forward was very strong in him to to do that. Well, you know, the films, I did two films with Les. That was the first one. And then there was a, I had gotten a commission about, you know, some years later from the to do uh, a, a project called Living Texas Blues from the Dallas Museum of Art. And I, Les and I went to listen to blues in this place called Eli's in Oakland, Eli's Mile High Club. And it was this uncanny scene of this blue singer with a turban and a kind of uh, uh, red, white polka dot kind of unisuit. And there was this woman dancing in front of him. He was singing this song called Cigarette Blues. And this, you know, this woman was flaunting her cigarette in the blue singer's face. And Les and I were just hypnotized by this. <laughs> and afterwards, I asked this woman, she could barely speak English. She was a nurse from Munich. And I asked her if she would do it again. I talked to the blues singer and I called to Dallas to the curator I was working with. I mean, this was a non-budgeted movie and told him the scenario. And he said, great. And so uh, that became a short film that I did with Les. And that one showed is, is shown very extensively. 
at festivals in different places around the world. Okay, I want to let people know that the film Down in Dallas Town is... It's distributed by First Run Features that distribute several of my feature-length films. And uh, I do want to give a shout-out, though, to my editor, Jason Johnson Spinos, who's edited many films with me. This was It's a great collaboration. Directors, I think, are only as good as their editors. Especially in the realm of documentary film work. I always put cinematographers, when it's a narrative film, usually I like cinematographers, editors. That's sort of the pecking order, it seems to me. I may be wrong, but that's, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I, I work with good cinematographers, too. But now in the iPhone world, I also use my iPhone. It's given yeah. me a lot more freedom. Yeah. And some of the some of what's in this movie, if I had gone with the film crew, I would never have been able to film the interactions that I did. Yeah, the iPhone has revolutionized filmmaking. Do you remember the show back on PBS called The 90s? Yes. Uh-huh. Part of the premise of the show, of the, the, the grant, if you will, was to give cameras to people, just everyday people or all around the world and let them make their own movies. In some ways, the iPhone has made that writ large now in our society. Well, it is amazing. You know, there's uh, my organization, Documentary Arts, in collaboration with Aperture, uh, Magnum, and the International Center of Photography, we do an online platform called truthinphotography.org. And it basically, it's, you know, um, it's an open-ended forum where people send in whatever, and it's a dialogue. And it's everything from kids in high school to the most famous photographers. It is amazing. I mean, in one piece, I, I think the estimate is now there are at least a trillion photographs made each year. For our listeners, if they want to look at just what you described, if they want to do look into that more. Truthinphotography.org. Well, I want to thank you for this film. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. In some ways, it's a meditation on the Kennedy assassination and the world we live in and how these threads you follow are done in such a way to give us an opportunity to think about them as opposed to in taking them in as part of a entertainment enterprise. And I, I appreciate the way that you approach the, the work and giving us the opportunity to, in some ways, be more interactive with the experience. Congratulations to you on Down in Dallas Town. And once again, it is available on First Run Features. That's a, the film distributor where you can find out more about the film. And at some point, I assume on VOD through that. Again, congratulations on your work. Thank you very much. It's really been a wonderful conversation. We've been speaking with writer, producer, director, Alan Govner. The film is available on First Run Features. It's called Down in Dallas Town. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music